The Unstarving Artist book is available now at unstarvingartistbook.com. Hey, Aunt Harriet, how are you? I'm fine, Harry. How are you? Good. It's nice to see you. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Um, Same. Thanks. Likewise, likewise. So um, I, I want to hear more about your story and the time you worked in the art world. And uh, for those who don't know, um, this is my aunt, Aunt Harriet, and she has worked in um, New York and Charleston in different uh, roles in the art world. So it's going to be fun to to chat and uh, learn more about that. So um, why don't we go like way back on memory lane, like you were saying, and um, were you interested in art as a girl growing up? Uh, yeah, I, t- I took I took art lessons. Um, I initially thought I was going to study English in college, but I had a wonderful art history teacher and ended up deciding to major in art history. And and, uh, and I was very lucky. I was actually able to get a job um, after a year or so out of college. I got a job at the museum and I got working on their new building campaign. But that was the early new building campaign, the first Richard Meyer building, um, which was a lot of fun. And then... Um, For those who don't know, what's the High Museum? Oh, the High Museum is um, is an art museum in Atlanta. Uh, general, you know, general interest museum. Has a, Probably the, be- uh, the best art museum in Atlanta or the biggest art museum, right? I would say, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was great. It was a it was a great experience. Um, and they were very generous while I was working there. I ended up taking graduate courses at Emory and got um, a master's and um, then moved to New York and um, got a job as an assistant at Abrams Publishing. Very cool. Very cool. And with for many years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we I want to I want to dig into all that with you. Um so you were at UNC Chapel Hill, right? Correct. What do you remember? Was there a specific class in art history that you were really excited about that made you think this is what you wanted to study? Well, my favorites, my favorite um, period was uh, or is my seventeenth century Dutch, but I think that class was um, that class was okay. But um, maybe I, you know, I went in with too many expectations. It was really more just a general interest, and um, I enjoyed all the classes. And um, uh, there was a 20th century class that I really enjoyed. And just kind of simplified it for. Yeah, was there um, um, uh, any sort of um, trips to art museums or artists that you saw locally in Chapel Hill or? Any sort of exposure to the arts while you were in college outside the classroom? Yes, I mean the the college, the university has um, a very good museum called the Ackland Art Museum. They also um, did something that I was involved with. It uh, it's called the Fine Arts Festival. Um, I can't remember if it was it was every few years, and I worked on the Fine Arts Festival, and it was uh, visual arts, poetry, literature, music. It was everything, and it was a lot of fun. Lot well, of what did you fun. do on the Fine Arts Festival uh, committee? I just sort of helped. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 you know, it's been so long. I can't really remember. I just remember being a part of it. I, you know, helped with correspondence and, um, you know, meeting people when they arrived and seeing them to the hotels and that thing. Got it. Got it. So they had 
visiting artists and professionals coming in from around the country for the event? Yeah, yeah. And one of my favorites, and if this was a visual arts, but it was a, is a um, an African American poet named Intazaki Shungang, um, and she she was terrific. She just she just read her portrait. She was made, she was really fabulous. Anyway, and there was a lot of conceptual art was very big at the time. So I remember Hans Hacker was there and Nancy Sparrow was there um, in terms of visual arts. They're both conceptuals. Uh, Right. And then, you know, as I said, there was no music. So um, you did art history. Did you study um, uh, all periods of art or were there specific areas that you focused in? I studied all periods and um, the same in graduate school. I mean, it just. Um, a good survey. When you, do a, when you do a PhD, I think at that point you specialize and. Maybe some more formal programs required to specialize, but I don't. And so what was it like um, going from UNC to the high? How did that connection come about? Um, well, I, I, you know, out of college with a liberal arts degree, it was, it was kind of hard to find a job. And um, I ended up working for a year as um, a broker's assistant in a brokerage company, which was eye-opening. And um, I started volunteering. What were you doing at the brokerage as a brokerage assistant? What was that like? I was I was an assistant. You know, I would answer the phones, you know, help with orders, um, correspondence, that kind of thing. This was back in the day where people would call in and you would answer and they'd say, yeah. I want 10 shares of Ford or whatever. Right. Although, you know, as an assistant, I'm not supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to just pass on the message. <laughs> <laughs> they have rules about that. Got it. Got it. Got yes, it. Yes. And what? They would call in and say, yeah, I'm going to buy X number at market or stop living or whatever, whatever order they wanted. Did you know that? So even though you got that job, were you pretty set on working in something related to the arts or did? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in fact, I started volunteering at the High Museum um, while I was working there. And I was lucky. I was working on, in their library, helping to organize their library. And um I was just lucky that um, one day the director came by after after hours and saw me there, and and I guess there was a there was a position coming up, and he said he told the person you know interview her, and I got the job. So, so so were you? Yeah, were you uh, aware of that? Like, were you intentionally trying to just get in there because you knew that oh, that yes. would be the best way to get <laughs> opportunities, or was that kind of just uh, something you? you know, we're fortunate to stumble into, do you feel? I, I was hoping it would lead to a job. I mean, I was glad to do it, but I was hoping it would lead to a job. So was the library something open to the public or is this more of an internal archives for the museum? It was an internal. An internal. And um, I guess, what were you doing? Cataloging works that they had or documenting things? You know, cataloging, organizing. Um, it was fairly, you know, it was fairly, uh, I don't know. Uh, Clerical? Casual. Casual. Yeah. So what was the job that, that opened up that you were tapped for? It was called Expansion Project Assistance. And it had to do with the, the Richard Meyer building. And it was basically fundraising. Um, so again, it wasn't strictly art, but it was in the art. Uh, so so the, those who don't know, what's the Richard Meyer building? Um, it's a, it's a 
beautiful white, it's a building made of white porcelain panels um, with a lot of light. There are also a lot of, um, you know, open, open spaces, open light. He, he was very interested in uh, natural light and uh, making it, um, you know, a pleasant experience for the viewer. And it's wonderful and it's a central day treatment that winds around a bit like the Bougainville uh, and much smaller scale. So it and the, before this, the high was in another building, and this right was basically a, a capital campaign to raise money for a new building, which is now the Richard Meyer Building, but it didn't exist at the time. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. Got it. So the, I mean, I live in Atlanta now. I know that area well. Is the old High Museum building still uh, around, or is it was it torn down and replaced? I'm not sure, frankly. It was right next door, and it was the art center building. So the High Museum was part of the um, the um, Atlanta Art Center, and so it included the uh, the uh, Alliance Theater, uh, the Symphony. Uh, well, they have the the, the Woodruff Art Center now. Do you remember that? What's that? The Woodruff Art Center is there now. No, that was it. So that it was. was it. Do you think the old building was on that? plot of land or was it the same building i see, i haven't i haven't looked closely yeah I, it was a red brick building <laughs> i don't know i don't think uh, it's red brick but maybe i don't know that would be interesting to know so they was richard meyer a benefactor who basically uh uh you know was a primary donor for that campaign or was he oh no he was the architect he, he was, was the architect, architect. yeah got it yeah, he was yeah hired to design it was he already hired, you know, they were, they were, had they broken ground on it and they were raising more money or was it kind of like they needed to raise a certain amount of money and then the expansion would actually happen? I think he had already been hired when I got involved. Came on. Yeah. Um, and one of our, one of my duties was we had a slide presentation and it was very, you know, very analog back then. Had you know the slide projector, and uh, I would carry it from house to house, and donors, you know, would have volunteers would have parties, and we'd show the slides, um, and I'm talking about the museum and what's needed, getting pledges and donations. Was it fun? It was fun, and I did some grants writing that kind of thing. I'd imagine, uh, yeah, I mean, you go to these different people's houses in Atlanta meet some people, um, see some interesting, um, uh, make some interesting connections. Um, were there any fun stories from that? Like, uh, you know, uh, interesting people you met or people that became donors or benefactors that, uh, you remember? I, I, I do remember. I mean, I don't know if Ann Cox Chambers is the one of the people these days, but she, you know, was kind of family and um, she also she of has, the cox family or is that a separate yeah and cox chambers the newspapers yeah so for those who don't know like yeah cox is a uh large private company in atlanta one of the largest private companies so they have a lot of cable and newspapers and all that stuff okay yeah. so they were also yeah. uh a supporter of this campaign she was yes and so it was fun to go to her house she had a big house and i don't know exactly where it was i can't but um and this wasn't exactly fun, but it was interesting. I uh, coming back from one of those parties, I got hit by a drunk driver. Oh no! Um, 
Yes, and luckily, uh, luckily, um, neither of us was hurt. And the the uh, slide projector survives. <laughs> so, so, so this would have been like a one of those slide projectors where you put the physical slides in and they it slides around yeah. and all of that. Wow, mm -hmm. that is old school. <laughs> it was old school, very much, very much so. So, how long was uh, the expansion campaign? Actually, did... I take it back. Yeah, though. I take it back. Um, a slide got damaged. Was... <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying to remember now. But it, there were some cases where it was, you know, sliced. But then it, it was it was automatic. You know, it had progressed to the point where the slides, you know, did automatically, and so it looks like a it looked like a movie. It was smooth. <laughs> I see. Were you ever the one in charge of speaking over the slides and kind of presenting and giving the talk during the? Um, occasionally, um, but there wasn't too much to do. I mean, the talk was really inherent in the in the slide presentation. Got it. Got it. So how long did that sort of expansion assistant role last? Gosh, uh, I can't remember now. Let's see. Just ballpark. Was it a couple of years or was it just like a six month Here. thing or something? No, it was about three years. And when when it ended, and the I, I worked through the opening of the building, and when the building opened, my job was basically morphing into fundraising, solely fundraising and grant writing, which wasn't what I was interested in. So that was when I decided to move to New York, and it was great because the publicity department had made a ton of um, New York connections in publicizing the building. And Richard Meyer is a New York architect, so um, you know. So there was there were a lot of New York connections, and um, the, the director um, very generously wrote letters on that, letters introduction to various people, and that's how you know um, didn't happen directly, but indirectly, that's how I ended up getting What is a what was a letter of introduction like back in the day? Was it um, hey Aunt Harriet, you know Harriet? is interested in moving to New York, um, will you take a meeting with her or was it more strong, like you should hire her? What, what sort of, did you ever see the letters? It was, it, was the, it was on the gentler side. I mean, it was a nice, it was a very nice letter. I highly recommend this person. That type of thing. Yeah. Be well advised to meet her or, you know. Or so, so did you move up without having a job and you were going to figure things out? I did. I did. What was that like? Did that take some courage? <laughs> It was a little, I think it, it, it ignorance was bliss <laughs> until I got there. And then it was a little nerve wracking. And I, you know, you do get your point where you think, am I ever going to get a job? But, but I did ultimately. Uh, so it worked out. Was it hard to find a place at first? Did you live with friends? How'd... Yeah. Yeah. It was a little hard. Um, I finally, I, I got a, a, a one year sublet and, um, but not having a job um, and the, the rental market in here. Yeah. Especially at the time, it was very, very tight, and so a lot of people wouldn't even talk to me <laughs> without a job. Even with the with my father co-signing, they they weren't interested. Wow. So, um, yeah, but fortunately, I did find somebody, and I, it's a great little apartment on on West Seventy Fifth Street. Um, and then I moved in with some some friends um, after. So, what was the job search like? Were you applying as well, or were you just trying to? take meetings with people that the director would introduce you to? How did, how'd you go about that? It was a little both. I, I presented them as information interviews, you know, asking for information interviews. And um, 
if there was a position, they would tell me and say, you know, you might apply for this. And that's how I ended up getting the job at Averse. And someone said, oh, I know they're looking for an assistant. And she sent me. Okay, cool. And it, it, did, it took a long time. It was a long process because for some reason, uh, you know, I don't know if they had a lot of candidates or what, but it took them a long time to make a decision. So it was a bit nerve How long did it take? couple of months, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but I could be, I could be. Uh, Misremembering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or time, time would have felt s- slower than if you were it, it looking was, for a job. Yeah, it was creeping. The, um, so, you know, tell, tell folks, what is Abrams? What were they known for? They, did they publish um, predominantly art-related books or were they also publishing, you know, fiction, nonfiction uh, novels, things like that. Yeah, Abrams is, it was, um, um, back, back in the day, um, when I was there, it was, um, it was called Harry and Abrams Inc. And it was founded by Harry Abrams and Fritz Lonsmith as an art book publishing book, specifically art books. And had, um, Lonshoff was Dutch, I think. So they had an office in, in the Netherlands. And because so much printing at the time was done in Japan, there was also a production office in Japan. So that um, you know, people often send someone on press, you know, to oversee the printing of, of art books because the printing can be very delicate. But we, we we had a whole, you know, there was a whole office there and they would go on press. And, and our production manager in New York was Japanese as well. So... We could speak directly to you know his colleagues and you know, what to do. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, so, what was your first role at Abrams? Well, one of my first roles, I was an I was an assistant Robert Morton, who was the special projects manager, and um, at the time he was uh, winding up a book called In the American West, which was photographs by Richard Abbott. I don't know if people are familiar with Abaddon. He was a famous... Can you say it? Uh, Richard who? Abaddon. Richard, Richard Abaddon. Abaddon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, he was a famous photographer. He did a lot of fashion photography, but also a lot of art photography. Um, uh, and he was he was very big at the time. And this was um, a project called, as I say, In the American West. And it was, it was funny because um, he... Back then, um, books were cloth bound, and so you would choose the cloth that covered the, you know, the the boards, and um, you choose a color or whatever. And so Avedon brought a rock from his trip out west and said, "I want the co- I want the cloth to be this color." So, and he gave the rock to Sean Yamamoto, the production manager. And Sean cut the rock in half and sent half of it to Japan and kept half of it, you know, in New York. And um, they matched it. So, um, but so my first job, they were finishing up and they were doing um, the last of the, what they call, well, they often call them color proofs, but this was in fact a duotone book. So it was black and white, but with duotone, and rather than just black and white, there was, there's another color under the black to give it richness. Um, and so my job was to take the proofs, get in the cab, and go to Abaddon's studio and wait while he corrected them and then take them back. What's and a proof? Very, 
Um, it's literally the book unbound, but, you know, in printed form, um, you know, kind of folded over, not, not formally bound at all, but um, it's the way the printing is supposed to look, the color, um, it is the same in this case, it was duotone. Um, so what sort of colors. corrections would he make? Would he be focusing on the layout or the color being wrong, like aesthetic stuff like that, or more, oh, like this, this is a typo and grammar and things like that? Yeah. The, theoretically, that we're we should be way beyond type. <laughs> um, the whole point, the, the idea um, is to you know get every get the type and the design and the layout all set um, before you start doing production proofs. And the production is proofs are really to show you how it's going to look on the page, and it's all about the color and or the or the richness and the density. And so he was very generous. He actually took me in with him and said, you know, do you see how this could be richer, could have more contrast and more density? And and he would mark it up and, you know, say, you know, do this, add that, take that away. Um, I imagine that's got to be especially important if you're a photographer. Right. It was, it was, it was very important to him. And, you know, for example, um, at the time we used paper, what they call paper mechanicals. And then they would do a camera and we would send transparencies or um, um, black and white prints and they would make the art and put it in, drop it in. So it was easy to, to flop something. So you could get something backwards, for example. So you had to make sure the art was in the right direction, you know, that nothing was flopped. Um, but the text should be set at that. So it's, yeah, all things. Knock on wood. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes there were issues, but. Okay. So you did that for Richard Abaddon's uh, book. Um, and did you do that for other books as well? No, that one was, um, usually they would just send them by messenger or something, but this one ha was very, um, it was on a very tight schedule. And so they wanted, and, and I think they wanted to be sure he was, you know, getting it, focusing on it and, and then returning it. Mm -hmm. Because so, uh, I guess the, so a they, messenger person could drop it off and then he could just leave it unopened or leave it aside. Right. And not, not that he would do that because, he, you know, it, it meant a lot to him, too. But this just saved time because messengers could get, you know, delayed and packages get lost. And, you know, they just didn't have time for anything. Got it. Um, did you feel like that was a good way to get your first exposure to the business? It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And when I... Um, one, you know, after it was all done and um, the book was printed, I came into the, to my desk one day and there was a copy of the book there and I opened it up and it, and it was from him. He And he had signed it over to me and said, you know, um, for Harriet in memory of all those trips uptown. And, <laughs> That's and, sweet. Uh, it, it was very, it's very sweet. <laughs> when a book like that is finished, sweet. would Abrams have a party or some sort of, you know, release party? Often they did. In the good old days, often they did. What were those um, like? Well, they could be fun. I kind of came at the very tail end of that. I remember one of the most fun was there was a, a Warhol book. And so they had a, a big party for that. And a lot of the uh, people who were still around um, from the, the factory, you know, from Eddie Warhol's factory days were there. So it was it was a lot of fun seeing, you know, seeing all the characters. Would we, would, if you went to a party like that, would you mix and mingle or were you kind of on the clock and 
and uh, you know thoughtful about working effectively. It, de- it depended. It depend if it wasn't my book, you know, I didn't I didn't have any duty. You know, it was one of the perks being able to go to those parties. So yeah, you would. You would just it's, you would just go and have fun. have a good time. So, yeah. so okay, so if you just did that for the Richard's book, what would what were your duties after that? What sort of day to day stuff did you do? As an assistant, you know, uh, correspondence. And um, I was sent out to take a copy editing course, um, and I did that. And then my boss started giving me text to copy edit and uh, captions to put in, you know, put in order and um, uh, checking art in. You have to make a list of the art and describe that. And, um, there's a lot. There at the time there was a lot of record keeping involved because everything was shipped overseas. And so it had to be very clearly labeled. Was the art as well shipped overseas, or was that photographed oh, yeah. over here? Well, it, they were they were uh, tra- usually photographs of the art, yes. But in in the case of Richard Avedon, it was literally his photographs that were sent. Got it. Got it. Um, what goes into you know copy editing for an art book? What sort of uh, principles are you striving for? When, when it comes to describing well, an artist and art. I have the same principles that you would do for any book. You know, you would, you're going to check the grammar and spelling. You want to make sure that um, everything seems consistent internally. You know, that things aren't out of place, that you aren't talking about someone on one page, but you haven't really introduced him until 50 pages down the road, that kind of thing. There are also a lot of, um, since it's illustrated, there were always captions. So you had to make sure that the captions matched the right photo, the right caption, the right photograph, and that it was describing the image accurately. Um, because sometimes you, and I see this today in books, you know, they'll describe something and look at the photograph and that's not there. <laughs> um, and that happens all the time because, you know, they decide to use one, a, a different photograph at the last minute and forget that the captions not exactly uh, the same or the and they're just moving happy. too fast so they just don't they don't yeah. update it yeah how much of these sort of books are typically uh, biographical content of the artists is it a lot about the artists themselves or more about the art itself it's it's both it's both i mean what they call they call them artist monographs generally and they're if it's about one artist and it generally is life and career, you know, life and art. Um, I think some artists are more interested in, you know, getting into biography, but generally there, and, and others prefer not to, but generally there's some kind of biography. Did the artists typically have a lot of input into, yeah, the content of the book itself? Are they involved That's, at that level? Yeah, they are. I mean, they're especially involved in terms of what art is included. Um, they work with the editor on that. And um, generally someone is hired to write the text and they they um, vet the text um, as well as the editor. The editor does the copy editing, but, but they make sure that it's accurate from their point of view. So what would trigger an artist, you know, back in the day to... Uh, be tapped for one of these books? Is it something that they would come to Abrams themselves or would their business representative, like a, a gallery, come to Abrams? How would 
how would a book like Richard's book come about in the first place? It's it's a, a little of both. I think probably I don't know for sure in terms because I uh, in terms of the Richard Avenon book because I came in um, after toward the end, right? But um, I would think they approached him um, with it. So Abrams um, approaches think, artists sometimes. Well, a lot of times they'll um, editors will um, kind of cultivate artists and um, follow their work and. Uh, you know, even if they're not going to do something right away, they, you know, they want to be top of mind. Um, and so I don't know if they knew exactly what he was working on at the time, but I'm sure they were, they, you know, the editor was interested in working with Richard Abbott. You know, the... know exactly what came about? I don't know. Sure, sure. So, yeah, setting aside Richard, I mean, do they, do the editors sometimes uh, invest in art themselves? I, I could imagine you could find an artist you like in New York, invest in some of their work, and then write a book to kind of showcase them and get a bigger audience for them and help kind of protect your investment. Is that something that you feel like ever happens? I am not. Well, that would not be probably coming from the editor, no, because to, to invest at, at the level where you would get a book, you'd have to be a serious collector. Gotcha. Serious. Gotcha. Um, and that does happen, um, I think, you know, where a collector will, will um, approach a publisher about a book. Generally, it requires them buying books as well because they're, the books are expensive to produce and um, they're not, you know, they're not mass market paperbacks. They're not huge sellers. They do, uh, they, I probably are going to do well, but they're very expensive to me. Do you ever uh, have any anecdotes or insights where uh, an artist having a book published like this helped their career in tangible ways? I don't think it's, I mean, I think it always does. I mean, you know, it's like any other, any other thing when, when you're published, you know, I guess it's the same with writers, you know, anytime you're published, it's a, it's, it's a prestigious thing. Um, so I, I would certainly think it couldn't hurt, um, but I don't have any, you know, I haven't, I don't have any. You weren't a part of that part of the, yeah, you yeah, weren't part of that in your roles in day to day. Yeah. No, no worries. No worries. Um, um, so you were at Abrams for a while. Um, wasn't there a time where you were also working at the Met in New York? Mm -hmm. I, I was at Abrams in various capacities. I started as an assistant, then I became an editor, and then a senior editor. I was a managing editor for a little while. What does a managing um, editor do versus a, a regular editor? It's much more administrative. So you're keeping up with schedules. So you're making sure that um, um, things are on track schedule-wise and that the authors are sending, you know, that the, each editor is responsible for keeping up with his or her author. Um, but, but the managing editor oversees all of it. Um, you know, it keeps up with the editor too, um, and just makes sure everything's on track and coordinates with publicity and marketing. It turned out to be a lot more administration than I wanted in the end. And so I, um, I ended up going freelance for a while because at that point, a lot of people had passed through Abrams and gone to other companies and I was able to contact them and say, if I went freelance, would you have work for me? And I had enough people say yes. So I did that. And one of the 
places I uh, did freelance work was the man. So when they ended up having an opening, they hired, which was great. So I was on staff there for five years. Cool. So it was cool. Was the um, so you were, if you were you were on staff with them for five years, um, you still call it freelance? Was that because you were doing projects for other clients as well at the time, or? No, I started out freelance. I started out not on staff with them. Um, and then they got, then they had an opening and they um, interviewed me and asked me to go on staff. So I was no longer freelance. Okay. And so what sort of work were you doing at the Met? Um, it's mostly exhibition catalogs. Um, I also... Um, what does that mean? <laughs> that means literally, if you look at, if you go to the Met's website, you see all their, ex, you know, their exhibitions listed. Mm -hmm. There's always a publication, that, almost always a publication that goes along with the exhibition. So that um, book, they would call that a catalog? It's called a catalog, yeah. Got it. And it, it is literally a catalog. It can, I guess it can go, you know, in scope beyond the, the, you know, the parameters of the exhibition. But there's also, it literally includes all the art, art that's in the exhibition. Got it. So it kind of can just capture that moment in time. It's a record of the exhibition. Yeah. And then uh, it would be sold in, in the Met. People would buy it. It's like a coffee table art book, something like that, typically. Yeah. And it would be sold in the trade as well. So it'd be sold to Barnes & Noble or wherever, you know, wherever they could sell it. Interesting. Was there any differences between how Abrams did their books and the Met would do the books? Well, I think the big difference is schedule because um, the curators are working on the exhibition itself. And they're literally often working up until the last minute. And um, what sort of decisions well, are they making in the last minute? Like what are to place where? Well, if, if maybe maybe something fell through, often a loan will fall through and they have to replace it or um, things like that. Um, but a book requires, especially an illustrated book, especially and especially back then when everything was much less automated. It required a long lead time. It usually required about 10 months to a year uh, from conception to a finished book. And curators, you know, it's it's very hard for the curator who's still working on the exhibition to envision the book um, without having, a, you know, the finished exhibition in mind. So there was always this push-pull with the schedule. Um, we were always, you know, fighting fighting against time or, or, you know, working against time. So was that a bit stressful? Yes. <laughs> but it was, I mean, publishing is stressful anyway, because it's always about, there's, it's always about deadlines and, um, and, um, well, there's some deadlines. And if something goes wrong and it's too late to fix it, you know, it's, it, it can be very stressful. And it's also, it has a lot of moving parts and it's very rare for one person to control everything. You've got designers and production people and you've got all kinds of people. So there's no way one person can guarantee, you know, um, any kind a certain of outcome. That. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're all working together. Uh, well, things go over budget often sometimes, or, or over deadline. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And what would happen and in those scenarios? Books, 
the books, especially again, especially then, the books would come by ship, you know, um, and so it would take two or three months often for the books to get here from Japan. Or later, there was printing in Italy, and then printing has expanded all over the place now. But um, I remember trying to remember what it was. I think the ship sank. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what? The ship sank? <laughs> <laughs> to go back to press and print it again. Oh my gosh! Or actually, maybe I actually I'm maybe I'm maybe making that up. I think the ship did sink, but they got. I can't remember if they got. I think they might have got. Maybe got some back. of the 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 storage. Yeah, yeah. The shipping containers off. Yeah. Um, you mentioned like a loan might fall through. When you say that, you mean an art loan, like a piece of art being on loan from another right. institution. Right. Right. And, it, you know, it's, it's, they, they come from all kinds of places. And sometimes, um, sometimes collectors can be capricious. And, uh, so it might be a private collector and they just on a whim side, you know what? I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> right. Or, you know, I don't know, something happens or they can't get the insurance they need because, you know, it involves a lot of insurance and checking things in and out. And also, I mean, I remember one curator. Dealt a lot with um, a member of a small European royal family, <laughs> and, <laughs> and he was just quite capricious. You know, he would, he would promise and promise, and then um, and then not follow through. <laughs> would he come up with an ex, like a reason or a justification, or just kind of go silent? <laughs> I mean, no, I think he would just say no. <laughs> I don't know for sure. Again, I'm not. I wasn't in the room. Sure. But, um, I think it was very frustrating. <laughs> Well, you hear and these. So you're always they have to be prepared for you know that contingency. I hear these stories. I don't know how common this is, but you know, like there'll be art in let's say the British Museum, but it originally is from I don't I don't know if this is accurate, but just say like Greece or Egypt or something like that. And those countries want that art back. So maybe people are sometimes nervous about having it leave because they don't know if in flight somebody figures out they might you know sidetrack it somewhere. <laughs> well, that's a good point. I mean, that's interesting. I. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think um, it doesn't affect the Met so much because, Fair. you know, for example, they were borrowing something. Well, I don't think they'd ever be allowed to borrow the Elgin marbles from the British Museum, you know, which is from the from Athens, from Greece. But, um, you know, going from England to the United States wouldn't be that big a risk. Fair. Uh, right. But. But but again, you know, as I say, I don't think they can those in. <laughs> how many, how like uh, how common is it for art that's on display in an institution like the Met to be from private collections versus public ones? That's something that I don't really uh, know much about. It sounds like it's can be a fair bit. Actually, um, less and less. Yeah, I mean, it, when they're having an exhibition like that, they might take a painting that's you know by this artist and from a private collection. But for the most part, um, they're they're highlighting their own collection, you know, because the Met has a huge, huge collection. And I've forgotten the percentage, but a very small fraction is on display at any one time because there's just not enough room. Um, so often they, they borrow things um, to fill in gaps, that kind of thing, and, and you know, make it a complete picture. Uh, but but the focus is generally on the you know the Met's collection. How does the Met um, 
acquire new art? Are they going to auctions? Are people donating it? What What's it like for them to get was, new pieces? Uh, it's a, a little of everything. I mean, I remember working with a curator and we were on a terrible deadline and, and he gets a call in his office and it's the director saying, I need you to go to Paris tomorrow, you know, to bid on this piece. And I said, you know, can he send somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> director tells you what to do. You have to do it. So, Why do you think I mean, that you were trusted with that? What? Was this you that was tasked to go bid on it? Or no, no, no. The, no, the curator. The curator was. The curator was told to, you know, get on the plane tomorrow. And uh, by tonight, I can't remember how quickly they had to do it, but the auction was the next day. Would they give them a certain, I guess, maximum number they could bid? Something like that? I would guess. Yeah, I would guess. So when you were coming up, what what were these years that you were working at the Met? Was this in the 90s, the early 2000s? 2000s. That sounds um, right. Philippe de Montebello was still there for a year or two, I think, when I was there. And in fact, I was there during the whole 2008 mortgage crisis. Um, and that was kind of tough. I mean, the Met's, you know, a huge institution, but they, they're, they're, you know, endowment is underwater for I mean, everybody, there was a, you know, a wage freeze and a freeze. They got past it, but, um, you know, I think it affected them. But but I was going to say, one of the wonderful things about the Met was they would have, you know, I've forgotten how many staff, people on staff, but, you know, in the, I mean, it, they, there were something like 2,000 security guards in London. Wow. So it's huge. Um, and they would have staff meetings in the auditorium. And anybody who, you know, could, you know, get anybody who wasn't on duty, you know, in a particular gallery could go and they were great I and mean, especially Philip de Montebello was just this urbane charming man and who is he he? Would, he he was the director of the Met for many 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 years um, um and he just he was a big name and he, I think he's still with us but his big name in the art world um but and he would he would talk about exhibitions that were coming up and they were like little art history lectures with slides and the whole thing and we talk about um upcoming you know things that had just been purchased new art that had been acquired um it was great it was fascinating that's so interesting yeah it seems like a fun perk if you're into art history and you want to learn what's going yeah. on you kind of get an early access view of what's coming ahead um and there were all kinds of um lectures and events that you know again if you had time generally speaking you were you know you were allowed to go you could go to a, a lecture you know if you could take off another one and then you know they they often had um opening receptions for their exhibition mm -hmm. openings and most people were allowed to go to those with the with the major exception of the met gala um, you know, which is the Costume Institute Gala every spring. But what it, what day, is the Met Gala? The Met Gala is that uh, very big event where a lot of, you know, celebrities go and they dress of, up. Yeah, it's and it's always, a, it's an exhibition from the Costume Institute, from that department. And um, it's all about fashion. So and so the, the, the costume uh, department is the kind of fashion wing of the Met, the fashion collection, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. And they would basically have uh, pieces uh, on display, and then they would have a dinner or a dance in the right, the space. Yeah, at party. I mean, right now, I think I think it may it may 
just be closing, or it may still be open, I'm not sure, but th this year it was on all about the designer Carl Lagerfeld. Um, and other one year it was all about Alexander McQueen, another year it was product. So it's different. Um, and another year it was all about, it was all about, you know, ecclesiastical dress. Yeah. From the church? Yeah, it could be different things. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, if there's thousands of staff, of course, you all can't go to that um, that event. Did you ever get a no, chance to go? We were, asked, <laughs> we were asked to do the back entrance when we left that day. <laughs> Just please go out the back way. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, did you ever did you ever sneak in or, or peek into that? <laughs> My colleague who worked in the book went um, and... You know, they've had a good time. But... They report back any interesting stories? Mm, not that I remember. <laughs> not too memorable, yeah. So if that was the 2000s, I mean, I imagine a lot of uh, tech, there's a lot of technology change in publishing through those years. Yeah. What was that like kind yeah. of going through all the, the technology changes? It was interesting because, you know, at the beginning, we literally worked from TypeScript and marked it by hand. What does that mean? What does working from TypeScript mean? From a typewriter, something typed on a typewriter, from hard copy. And you would mark it by hand and send it out to a typesetter. Um, and what does a know, typesetter do? Literally set the type then. It was, you know, they would literally set the so, type. So you would type, you'd use a typewriter to write up basically a raw version of the text, and then the typesetter would make the text look pretty. It would basically have that big first letter and the right font and everything was laid out with the right space between lines, that sort of work? Right, right. Okay. And the designer would indicate, you know, what typeface, you know, what spacing, that kind of thing. But the typesetter would, would do the physical. I mean, and I think Pretty for, for a while there, they were literally, you know, it was um, a little piece of metal very, with ink on it. They would press down and uh, it was laborious. But um, then, um, you know, then we got computers and and it was it was a bit of an adjustment because it meant that um, the division of labor changed. You know, it used to be that the designer would specify a lot of this, but then it became the designer's job to actually set the type on the computer, you know, um, and, and sometimes editors would be brought in as well. And there was a little bit of resistance to that <laughs> because you're technically, you're not supposed to prove your own work. You know, you're supposed to, um, somebody else is supposed to do that. So it's really hard when you're. Where do you think that comes from? Just wanting to have an objective third-party view on your work or something like that? When you're, when you're, I think it's because when you become so familiar with it, you start to see what you expect to see, not what's necessarily there. So it's easier to miss things. I can see that. Like your brain will literally fill in the gaps of words that were missing yeah. or typos. You just don't even see the typos because you know what you meant right. when you wrote it. Right. So you want fresh eyes on, you know, when you're having things prepared, that kind of thing. But I imagine, so when that happened, you weren't uh, having messengers going around with proofs as much. Would you just email people uh, samples or? It's, it's, and now I'm trying to remember. There, there was still a long period where the, 
the color, you used color proofs. Um, so you, you maybe work on a computer, but still print it out and like send printed versions back and forth, you know? Yeah. You, you would send, you would send the computer disc to the printer along with the printout showing the way everything was supposed to be. Um, and then you would check it and they would actually put it in, you know, to um, the final form. We'd have to check and make sure everything was done correctly. What other ways has art publishing changed over the years as you've gone through your career? Well, I think there are a lot more places to print. It used to be with art books. Most people printed only in in Japan, in Italy. Italy was especially known for um, black and white printing. Um, and then as that became so expensive, other company, uh, countries became more... Um, more competitive, and I know Spain was a, you know developed a printing program, and and in the United States, and so a lot of it, you know it used to you'd have to build in the time to ship things overseas and get the back, and especially the physical books, you know, getting them back. Um, but now um, there are printers in the United States, and so it's not quite as difficult. Although, other, you know, those other printers still exist. And so, yeah, I imagine there's also, you know, we're talking about printing physical books. Did any of these publishing houses or uh, uh, printers move into, I don't know, creating websites or digital media for artists or exhibitions? Or is that not something that's really happened? Well, they, I mean, they do have websites. I mean, I'm, it, you should check. You should check out Abrams' website. I mean, they, it's really kind of amazing because when I was first there, it was there was um, there was Abrams, and it was basically adult nonfiction. And then we started dealing with the children's books, and now they have multiple imprints. You know, they have books for young readers. They have graphic novels. They have um, a lot of children's programs. They they just. I mean, it's amazing how they branched out. Super interesting. So you were in New York in art publishing for how many years? Just ballpark? Almost 30. Wow. So you were at Met for five. And then after the Met, did you go back to Abrams? Or what did you do after that? No, that's after the Met, I moved uh, to Charleston. Okay. So the Met was at the end. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So tell me about that. What was was that like uh, moving to Charleston? Did you keep some clients or did you get clients in the Charleston area? Well, I did. I, I continued to do some freelance work for the Met for a little while. Um, and because at that point, it was very easy to do everything by computer. So you didn't have to worry about shipping things back and forth. It just all went, you know, um, over the internet. And then um, I also uh, met uh, a man named Mark Sloan, who at the time was the director of the Halsey um, gallery at the College of Charleston. And I did some freelance work for him. He has since retired and moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, as a matter of fact. Um, and his, uh, that, that seemed to me a good time to retire. So I retired. Very cool. So yeah. I know you're not as plugged in. You're retired today with the art publishing yeah. world. Are there, that being said, I'm sure you have friends or colleagues who maybe you're still in touch with that are in the world. Are there any interesting, you know, insights or tidbits or anecdotes you can share there um, of just what's going on today in the art world or art publishing in general? 
not in terms of anecdotes. You know, it's hard. To, I'm, I'm just amazed there's, you know, given all the financial difficulties, I mean, it's a very low margin proposition um, for the most part. And well, for example, with Abrams, um, one of the reasons Abrams has been so successful is um, from Diary of a Wounded Kid. And I, don't, I think we mentioned, I mentioned this before. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was, you know, a graphic, I guess they call them graphic novels, but it was kind of a little uh, Diary of a Wounded Kid. But um, I think they're up to 14 books now and they've been movies and it's been hugely successful and that's allowed them to expand. So it seems like that, like having a breakout hit like that uh, kind of pays for everything else or helps finance a lot of other things. (laughs) Nothing lasts forever, but for for a a long while, it seems to have been doing that. Again, I'm not there anymore, so I can't, I don't know whether they finished or whether they're learning with like one or not. Was there that sort of hit driven dynamic uh, when you were at Abrams or at the Met where some books or publications just did way better than others? Well, everybody always wants a hit, <laughs> you know, they always wanted a big success. It was different at the Met, though, because, um, you know, the Met is a nonprofit and um, the curators fund the exhibitions. They they raise money for the exhibitions and catalogs. So it's not the same. I mean, they're still looking at, you know, costs and they don't want to go over budget or, you know, any of that. But it's a, it's a different financial situation. Got it. So then um, setting aside the Met at Abrams, were there some books that just really uh, tore off and did much better than others? Oh, yes. All the time. <laughs> what do you think was at the root of that? Was it just the artists already being well-known and popular or their subject matter? What, what do you think led to some doing better than others? I think, I think a lot of times it was the the artist was well known or the subject was well known or you know having a surge in popularity. Mm-hmm. We did a, a early on a, a big um, book about National Geographic, and um, that did really really well because it's such a well established name. Do you know National Geographic? I think they're like they're no longer have the print magazine at all or something like that. It's, it's or it was something I think I read. They got rid of their last, and I think maybe staff photographers or staff writers, or it's it's too bad because that was a huge magazine back in the nineties and the two thousands. Online subscription, I love it. Really? Yeah. Very but cool. That's too bad. Yeah. The whole yeah, I think the, the print side of it has gone away. But so you did a book on basically the highlights of National Geographic over the years, something like that. Right. Yeah. And you know they bought copies too, and that when when the the, either the artist or the partner, when they buy copies, it always helps the bottom line because, you know, the more copies you can print, the you know, less of that video. Yeah, I think you and I were talking about this before uh, starting the podcast, but um, I think a lot of folks don't realize when it comes to getting published, whether you're you're an artist and doing art publishing or if you're uh, writing some sort of nonfiction book under your name for your personal brand, a lot of times, yeah, like there's so much shenanigans where people are buying books and then they go to conferences and they give the books out or they want the conferences to purchase some. And so, um, yeah, like, you know, well, we call that shenanigans. <laughs> they just, they just call that a business agreement. To, f- fair enough. I don't want to upset anybody in your, your network, but I mean, you if know, you're, I mean, just, 
I don't think there's anything underhanded about it, but you know, I think some people did resent it sometimes. No, it's not necessarily underhanded. It's just, I mean, it's, it's not always transparent. Like I know that there are business conferences where if you want to get some big personality, um, I'm not going to say any names that like some big personality, that personality might say, okay, I'll come, but you need to buy 10,000 books or you need to buy 5,000 yeah. books for me to come. And, uh, I think, yeah, it's totally fine. But I think a lot of the uh, conference attendees may not know that. And they're like, oh, why are we all getting a free copy of this book? <laughs> Gee, no, this, this is a nice, yeah, this is a nice gift or, you know, uh, maybe they try to sell some, but, um, um, and then I guess I called it shenanigans because I think that when it, when it comes to some of the, like the best sellers lists, you yeah. can do some of that stuff to stimulate being on the best sellers lists. Um, those lists can be quite massaged, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. See, that doesn't really affect art books, you know, yes. except for something like Diary of a Wimpy Kid, you know, which, which break out. But um, for the most part, um, uh, I did not aspire to best selling. But I guess I, I point it for those who are listening and aspiring to be a, a published author, yeah, just try to try to learn about the industry, get plugged in and kind of learn what's publicly talked about and what, what else is going on and kind of figure all that out because that helps you navigate and have a more realistic picture of the the likelihood and, and the feasibility and the economics of doing it because um, it sounds like uh, the economics are quite tight when it comes to art publishing. Yeah. And, and people are, uh, generally the authors and the artists are, the books do best when they are an active part of the marketing campaign, when they are actively participating and coming up with ideas and you know it just it's just the way it is what sort of marketing campaign would be especially successful would they travel to different cities and go on the road that type of thing or they would do press like what sort sometimes of stuff they do, sometimes they do that yeah um they don't i don't think you know art books that doesn't happen as often um but um they do um and with art um books a lot of times the uh, the artist will have a gallery show, um, and you know the, the the gallery will buy books. And um, or if they're, uh, you know, a lot of times the artists are teaching, and so if they're giving lectures somewhere, they'll try to um, give them marketing materials for the book and promote that there. Right, and right, and 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 have you know encourage them to buy the book and offer the book at the day. Do they book signings, things like that? Mm-hmm. Yep. That makes a ton of sense. Um, yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been so great chatting with you, Aunt Harriet. I've had a lot of fun. Is there anything else you want to share yep. for, you know, artists or creatives out there? Um, well, I would just say if you were, if, you know, for people who are push, who are pitching projects to um, publishers to do your research and make sure that the company you're approaching actually publishes that kind of book. I mean, we'd be, you'd be amazed at how many people just, you know, send out hundreds of letters and, you know, they're, they're asking, you know, Abrams to publish fiction. And I mean, there is some fiction now, but it's illustrated generally. I mean, actually, I think there are some YA books and things like that that are, that are fiction now, but, but make sure you know what kinds of books they publish before you approach. I think that's yeah, it's a great advice because I don't know why people do it, but it, yeah, they a lot of people take this sort of shotgun approach where they just go to every exactly. single door, and it, it, you'd have much more success if you really did a bit more research, uh, found some targets, 
put more effort into those approaches, built relationships, yeah. things like that, um, you'd have much yeah. more likelihood of, but it's, that's a lot more work than I think having one form letter and sending it to a hundred, you know, places or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And, and, you know, and also the idea of it's, it's, it's good to, to know what you think your market is because they're, they will ask you if they're interested, who would buy this book? You know, who's going to buy it and how do we get it? Well, so the more, the more aware the author or artist can be. Um, the more likely the publishing house might pick it up and partner with them. Yeah. The one thing I, I actually wanted to ask you before we, we ring off was, um, um, did you, when you were at the Met and kind of transitioning to Charleston, was social media yet a thing? Was that at all something that people were using for promoting? It was, it was, it was just getting going. Yeah. They were, and they were getting, you know, they were getting very interested in it and trying to do things. And they have done a lot now, I think. Um, but it was brand new. Um, or not brand new, but it was pretty new. Pretty new. I mean, I mean, think Facebook came out in the late, late 2000s. So, uh, it was very new. Um, and I think, uh, from my understanding, if, if you're a up and coming artist and you want to, uh, be in a gallery or, um, maybe have some sort of business opportunity, like, uh, working with an art publishing company, a lot of them will look and see how much of a following you have on Instagram, you know, how much of a following you have on social media. They want to see that as a sign of like, um, you've already kind of done some legwork and, uh, I think that's going to be more and more prevalent going forward. Yeah. And especially, I guess, with artists, you know, because that is quantifiable. I mean, I'm either followed to buy or I'm good. Yeah. Tristan. Well, and Harriet, thanks so much. Um, really good, good time chatting with you and I uh, hope to see you soon. All right. All right. Take care. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for tuning in today. If you haven't picked up a copy of the Unstarving Artist book, go ahead and pick up yours at unstarvingartistbook.com. See you next time.